0: A lot of money, resources, and attention has been devoted to Mars because it could one day become our second home. But that's not to say Venus hasn't had its fair share of attention over the years.
1: Venus, perpetually obscured by thick clouds, is our closest planetary neighbor. Because it is similar to Earth in size and mass, it may provide information for a better understanding of Earth.
0: NASA last sent a spacecraft to orbit the planet in 1990.
1: Its Synthetic Aperture Radar, or SAR, will provide a resolution of the planet's surface not seen before.
0: Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, sent a whole slew of mostly successful missions to Venus.
1: It was an achievement of space technology which rightly earned international acclaim for Russia and opened new space frontiers.
0: And Japan has an orbiter there now. The tricky part is sending a robotic mission to the surface. Most have only survived for a few hours. So why send a robot to a planet that will destroy it?
2: Venus is this fiery hot body that can melt lead at the surface, right?
0: That's NASA Discovery Program lead scientist Thomas Wagner.
2: Why does it have such a different path than what we took here on Earth? We want to know if there's active volcanoes. We want to know if has plate tectonics like the Earth, things move around. And these missions ultimately help us understand those kinds of questions.
0: As we learned in the last episode of Space Curious, Venus eats spacecraft for lunch. We've tried to set a couple of spacecraft on its surface. They've lasted not that long. It used to be, in the U.S., NASA was the only way to fund and send a spacecraft to another world, but not anymore. Commercial space companies are taking planetary science on, funding and planning their own missions in record time. In this episode, we'll find out how NASA makes the tough choices, selecting which missions to send to other worlds, and how Rocket Lab plans to be one of the first private companies to go to Venus. From WKMG in Orlando, this is Space Curious. I'm your host, Emily Speck. Well, the moon and Mars have been the bells of the ball recently. I love learning about worlds we will likely never go to. In our solar system, Venus is a fascinating hellish world. Covered in volcanoes with surface temperatures that could melt most metals, it's a hellhole. But it's also an example of climate change that Earthlings might want to pay more attention to.
1: So I'm uh, Peter Beck, and I'm um, the founder and CEO of a company called Rocket Lab. And uh, right now I'm down in a New Zealand facility uh, we have a launch pad. Uh, we were known for, for building uh, rockets, uh, small rockets. We also built uh, spacecraft and, and uh, do end-to-end services for complete space systems.
0: All these other CEOs are like, let's go to Mars, let's go to Mars, and you're like, Venus, why is that? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I've always had a fascination for Venus for, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, Venus is a is a very close analog to Earth. You know, similar mass, similar size, uh, but but you know, it's a, it's a planet that has had uh, complete climate change runaway, and I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, from that. Uh, you know, the, the atmosphere is the majority of CO two, and it's it's just it's just an incredible place. And a relatively short time ago, on a galactic scale at least. You know, 800 million odd years. Venus was a very, very different planet than it is today.
0: Beck and many others agree there is a lot to be learned from the planet known as Earth's twin.
1: If you look through our solar system, there's kind of a few accepted places where there could possibly be life Um, and certainly uh, a few places where there possibly could have been life. And Venus is one of them. And to me personally, I think, you know, the, the question, you know, are we the only the only life forms is a huge, you know, a huge question for humanity. And it's not unreasonable to assume that if you can find life, uh, life in the clouds of Venus, for example, then uh, life is most likely, more, more likely than not, prolific throughout the universe.
0: When a scientific paper came out this year about possible signs of life in the clouds of Venus, it was another reason to want to go there. But Rocket Lab was planning its mission long before that. The company was already building a spacecraft for NASA to send to the moon.
1: So I said to the team, OK, guys, this is going to get to the moon. If it's going to get to the moon, let's just make it get to Venus. So, um, you know, the spacecraft that we've developed to deliver you know, that, that mission for NASA is basically identically identical to the spacecraft that we'll take to Venus.
0: What does that spacecraft look like?
1: Well the spacecraft mass is over three hundred kgs, and the majority of that is propellant. Um, and that gives us enough delta v to um, you know to get a a, you know, a positive c three margin to actually get out to some of these um, some of these more interesting places.
0: Let me try and translate that for you. This relatively small spacecraft will weigh under seven hundred pounds, but Beck is saying most of that weight comes from the fuel on board, and having more fuel or propellant, allows Rocket Lab more capability to change the direction of the spacecraft, or change velocity to maneuver in space and head to Venus, or destinations beyond. Rocket Lab plans to send the first Venusian mission starting in 2023, a very quick turnaround time for a planetary spacecraft. Part of the reasoning behind that is the Venus alignment that year will vastly reduce the travel time to Venus. So look at it this way. In August 2023, Venus will be on the same side of the sun as the Earth. So this makes it the perfect opportunity to go there. The first mission could launch from the company's launch site in New Zealand or in Virginia. Beck says they haven't decided yet. After launch, it will take about 160 days to reach its target.
1: And then, as we approach the, the planet, we will separate off an atmospheric entry probe. Um, and this is where we'll house the scientific instruments. And the probe will, will um, precede the, uh, the, the mother spacecraft, if you will, and re-enter, the Earth, uh, re- re-enter Venus's atmosphere at around about 11 kilometres per second, uh, which is pretty high velocity. And then the, the mother spacecraft will uh, act as a communications relay uh, back to Earth.
0: Now, you talked about that high rate of speed and the risk involved in this. What are the chances of this little probe surviving on the way down?
1: Well, I mean, we we shouldn't forget the Pioneer mission um, that was was launched uh, back in the 70s and 80s. The fantastically successful mission. Uh, In fact, um, you know, we're taking a lot of inspiration from those probes.
0: Peter Beck is referring to the NASA Pioneer program that sent two spacecraft to Venus in 1978.
1: And those probes are very successful. In fact, one made it all the way to the ground and sat there on the surface of Venus transmitting for a while.
0: Of the four probes that plunged down to the fiery volcanic surface, only one survived. And only for about an hour. After the break, we'll hear from NASA Headquarters about how the Space Agency selects missions to go to planets like Venus, and what it's like to be one of the scientists hoping NASA picks your mission.
2: Like, picture this. This is what a typical NASA mission is. Somebody goes into a laboratory someplace and says, "Oh." You're making this crazy, impossible-to-do measurement here in the lab with a staff of technicians and all the room and power that you want. And then they say, I got a great idea. Let's make this really tiny. Let's put it on a spaceship. Let's have it survive a rocket blast where it gets shaken and taken up to four Gs and smashed around. Let's put it through space for four or five years. Let it get bombarded by radiation. And then let's to let get to this place and still make these measurements as good or better than you did in the lab right here.
0: That's Thomas Wagner. He has a really cool job at NASA you've probably never heard of.
2: And I'm the lead program scientist for the Discovery Program, which launches what we consider on the small to medium side of missions to explore our solar system.
0: These spacecraft typically cost less than $500 million to design, build, and send to its destination. That's not chump change. But when compared to NASA's largest robotic missions, known as flagship or strategic missions, that cost several billion dollars, it's a relatively small cost.
2: The Discovery program actually traces its origins all the way back to the late 80s, when people first started talking about, could we do things faster, better, and ultimately cheaper? Um, And then in the early 90s is when the program really kicks off.
0: Wagner says competition is key to the success of this program. Here's how it works.
2: What happens is the community of scientists, both at NASA centers, out at private research institutions and out in academia, they propose missions to NASA that come in under a competition and we get anywhere from like 15 to 30 missions around. And from that, we down select probably to one or two missions that we pick ultimately to fly. And it's a really different way of doing business.
0: By offering this once in a lifetime opportunity for many, Wagner says NASA hopes to draw the best ideas and most innovative approaches.
2: But also, because they're in that lower cost category compared to some of these larger strategic and other missions, people can afford to take risk. And that's why we've even seen things like the first rover on Mars are from Discovery. The first samples that we brought back from a comet and asteroid were from Discovery.
0: Working on a mission that actually goes out into the solar system to conduct your research is a dream for any scientist.
2: You want to be a part of the group that went and launched that mission and collected that data. You want to be sitting there in front of the screen when you know this thing is landing on another planet and picking up a scoop of sample or whatever it is. So it really plays an important role kind of in the lifeblood of being a scientist too.
0: And the goal of discovery is fundamental to understanding our solar system and how we got here.
2: As someone once put it to me, if you think of the solar system forming from a ball of dust and coalescing into the sun and the planet, you know, a lot of what we're doing is looking at the floor sweepings that are left over to try to understand that stuff from the very beginning. So the ultimate goal of exploration of our solar system is trying to understand how it formed, um, how it works, what the processes that are going on today, you know, like things like how do asteroids impacting a surface modify a planet over time? How does space weathering modify bodies that are out there? And then one of our other ultimate questions is, is there life elsewhere? How did life begin?
0: So every few years, the best and brightest submit proposals to NASA with their ideas to study another world or body of our solar system. Dr. Sarah Hurst, who you met last time on Space Curious, is one of those scientists.
3: An assistant professor in planetary science at. Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences.
0: She's a science team member working on NASA's robotic mission to Saturn's moon Titan. But back to pitching to NASA.
3: You write a proposal with a group of people that is not just scientists, but also engineers, project managers, people who calculate the budgets and try to figure out how much things cost.
0: Then comes what I think must be the hardest part, picking a mission to go.
3: So what we do for
2: selection is this. The first thing is we get proposals. They come in and we run those through a process where external people from NASA, scientists that are active in the community, but aren't involved in any of these missions, evaluate them. And we have a whole bunch of different criteria we look at, which is like, how compelling is the science?
0: And then Wagner and his team at NASA try to figure out, can the proposal be done on a budget? Does it overlap too closely with any other missions planned?
2: And then we get down to nitty gritty details like, okay does this instrument make the specific measurement needed to really answer the question they said they were going to answer?
0: Next, a group of program scientists like Wagner and NASA program executives look at everything and break the missions up into categories or classifications.
2: Category one is, oh, you got to fly this. Category four is, for whatever reason, we don't think it's ready to fly. And sometimes it's, we don't think they can build it within the budget. Then in the middle, we have a thing called Category 2, which isn't quite as good as one. And then there's Category 3, which is, hey, this needs some technology development. If you invest money in it, this might be the kind of thing you want to fly down the road.
0: Then all that goes to another committee who overlooks the whole process and makes sure it was run fairly. But it still isn't over yet. All of this evaluation goes up to the top people at NASA's Science Mission Directorate.
2: This is a pretty broad group of people to overlook the entire portfolio.
0: That sounds really stressful. That that final day where you kind of talk it all through. Does it does it ever get stressful at times when you know there's a lot at stake because there's you know dozens and dozens of scientists and and employees that have been working on these missions. Does that kind of hit home for you?
2: So it is because you realize that these are people's jobs that are on the line, and you realize also they have put a lot of time into this. Like. They've been working on these mission proposals, some cases, for 10 years or longer, right? They have, it takes a long time to dream one of these up, and maybe it's even been submitted before and declined, and they've tried to address the issues. But the other thing is, it is so much fun. Like It is such a privilege to sit there in the room and hear about, you know, it's literally science fiction, right? It's like taking us to the next level of understanding and exploring the solar system. And there's always amazing ideas that come in. And it's, it's a lot of fun for all of us that are involved. But we do understand the gravitas of the situation, and that's never far from our minds.
0: After all that, several proposals get selected to move on. The whole selection process has four phases. And what we just heard about is still all part of that initial phase. But eventually, NASA does make a final selection.
3: Then we go back to the drawing board one more time and make sure all the designs are finalized and all of those things before we actually start, um, you know, cutting metal to build the flight instruments and the spacecraft and everything else.
0: At the time of this interview, NASA was at a critical point in the selection process. I had a lot of questions about the potential Venus missions because of the recent possible discovery of signs of life in the clouds there. But NASA has not yet announced which final missions will get the green light.
2: Yeah, so we have two that are going to go to Venus. Uh, One is going to study the atmosphere in particular and a little bit about the surface.
0: This spacecraft is called Da Vinci Plus, which stands for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging Plus.
2: The other one is more focused on the surface and the shape of the surface, what we call the morphology, um, and also the kind of rock types that might be there. We wanna know if there's active volcanoes, we wanna know if there's plate tectonics like the Earth things move around. And these missions ultimately help us understand those kinds of questions.
0: Could a spacecraft solve the mysteries in the Venusian clouds? Again, here's Dr. Sarah Hurst.
3: You could send another spacecraft to Venus and figure out the answer to this question, but you might not want to. There might be other things you care about more. We spend a really lot of time thinking about exactly what our science questions are and making sure that our spacecraft can answer those science questions. But that often means that there are other questions that we will not be able to answer because of the choices that we made.
0: In the end though, even after years of waiting, hundreds if not thousands of people will play a role in doing something absolutely incredible. When a spacecraft launches to another world, the information learned on that journey is used for decades even years after the spacecraft has long become space junk, or on Venus, met a very fiery end. Hey space fans, I can't believe this is the last episode of the very first season of Space Curious. We're already hard at work on a second season, and I can't wait to share those episodes with you. I'm always looking for intergalactic questions to answer, so please continue to submit your queries at clickorlando.com slash space. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at EMSpec. Find more episodes of Space Curious wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This episode was recorded, edited, and co-produced by Zach Rosen and myself. A special thank you to Peter Beck, Thomas Wagner, and Sarah Hurst. I'm Emily Speck. Tune in next time, for more stories that are truly out of this world. Until then, stay curious.